Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. At Trinity Church in Copley Square, uh, in Boston, there is a near a vacant lot frequented by skateboarders, a beautiful statue of former Bishop of Boston, Phillips Brooks, standing uh, aside a pulpit with his arm outstretched to an unseen audience. Behind him is a mysteriously hooded figure of Jesus Christ, uh, the face of whom you can barely see. And Jesus is resting a wounded hand on the shoulder of the preaching bishop. Carved underneath the statue is his name along with two sentences. It reads, Phillips Brooks, preacher of the word of God, lover of mankind. What the statue was trying to communicate was the dual virtues of this man, his verbal proclamation along with his tangible kindness. He had a ministry of hands as well as voice. And I think that summarizes very neatly and helpfully the diaconal impulse that we are here to celebrate today. It is a ministry of hands and a ministry of a voice. In Acts chapter 6, we see a fledgling yet thriving church with very complicated needs, needs that are physical, needs that are spiritual, and they are served by both hands, tangible kindness, and voices, theological proclamation. And today I wish to underscore the needful and costly work of the diaconal ministry, a work that involves both hands and voices, and then relate it to our beloved Eric Phillips. So let me speak about hands and the physical needs that are met by those hands. Uh, The early church was uh, invested in the concept of sharing because they were mimicking the sharing nature of the Christ around whom they huddled. And the Christian Woodstock that existed within the first chapters of Acts began to crumble. And certain uh, linguistic and uh, racial qualities came into play and made life rather complicated. And the Hellenist widows were being ignored uh, because they had been saturated by Greek culture and their Judaism had Greek accents and that was deeply upsetting to some other people. So they were being ignored and not just ignored in some uh, sort of trivial way that you didn't like their posts on Facebook. No, no, they weren't eating food. And so this was a problem, and it needed to be addressed. And so uh, the, uh, the hunger doesn't you know, fit within a caste system, at least within Christianity. And so we, the disciples had to create a solution to the problem. What I find fascinating is that the disciples very often get a, 
get some squinted eyes and, uh, and tweak noses whenever we read this passage. And they say, well, look, we're too busy to do this. We're really interested in the word of God. But what they're saying is we value so much this ministry and the equal distribution of food that we're going to create an order of deacons to make sure it happens well. Because if we did it, we'd make a hash of it. So we have to fix this situation by setting aside people who can actually contribute in this profitable way. Uh, and so they create this ordained caste, which, uh, which continued to grow and develop as the New Testament grows and develops an ordained caste called deacons. The Greek word is simply uh, meaning servant, but etymologically the word comes from, um, uh, from an ancient phrase meaning something like in the dust or from the dust. So it's dirty, dirty. To get one's hands dirty, to serve in the muck and the mire is the etymological thought behind the word servant. And they didn't just choose people willy-nilly. They chose people who had a background, who were deeply entrenched in God and, uh, and were spirit-enriched and yet diverse. What I think is interesting is they were, while they were all Jews, some of them had names that were Greek and others had names that were Hebrew, thus representing the complex divide between the Greek as well as the uh, Hebraic uh, widows that were being ignored. So they were, they were politically savvy and wise as serpents and yet uh, governed by the spirit at the same time. And the focus of this cast of deacons was to be the temporal needs and necessities of those who were in dire straits. And physical provision is of great concern to God. And it was a great concern to the leadership that God had established in the early church. And therefore, it ought to be of great consideration to us as well. And deacons are set in God's church to, to give a prophetic witness to the church about the tangible needs of uh, the people that are suffering within a given context, church, and community, and to help in some way to bring relief in those areas. And where did they get this understanding? Well, this understanding goes right back to Jesus Christ himself, the humanity humanitarian impulse and disposition was deeply present in the uh, compulsory nature of Jesus Christ, who would always reach out to those who were beleaguered and destroyed and devastated by the costly quality of human life. And, uh, and so they're simply copying that impulse and carrying that impulse, the Christic impulse within them. And uh, Jesus, as you know, wasn't a hermit. He didn't do what I often do, which is to hide away in an office and che check Facebook and act like I'm working. Just kidding, if you're watching online, I don't ever do that. Um, <laughs> but he, he didn't conclave himself away. Instead, Jesus spent his energies offering tangible help. So he touches lepers, and he makes cures for people, and he provides food for people. And Jesus taught us by his example, as well as his words, that physicality and physical provision actually matters. This is why he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't mean something existential by that. He meant a balanced checkbook. He means that some, you know, you have to pay your mortgage. You know, eventually if you don't pay the IRS, you go to jail, and that's of great concern to some people. Uh, and so this, this matters. Physical provision actually matters. Um, and this is, uh, really needs to be underscored that Christian experience is more than just cognitive theology, good as that is. There is a practical quality to it, because while we do not live by bread alone, 
uh, we don't live without bread either. And so we need the, the great existential, psychological, emotional, and spiritual help that God can give, and we also need the tangibles as well. And I uh, realized this personally in a very, very deep way when I was in ninth grade. Now, when I was in ninth grade, uh, I was bullied just like you were bullied, and it was hell, but we got through it. Um, and uh, I was, in fact, bullied by the quarterback of the football team, and he was a massive beast of a human being. And you're not going to win against the quarterback. You're just not going to win, especially if you have acne, braces, glasses, and no fashion sense. Thank God I'm a priest because now I have an outfit already chosen for me and I don't have to worry about the fashion sense anymore. But I couldn't get back at him physically because he was bigger than me, but I decided that I would get back at him in another way. So I chose a very um, artful form of vengeance in art class. Uh, my class... Uh, my art class that day was earlier than his, and I noticed that he was working on a very fancy medieval painting of a knight, you know, that looks somewhat like him, sort of an egotistical Freudian kind of mirror thing that was going on. And I decided that, that what I needed to do was deface it. I was going to deface the project, so I did. I wrote curse words all over the project and destroyed it. Now, later uh, I discovered, that is the next day, that the uh, art teacher came in and said, uh, Ethan, I noticed that Anthony's picture has been destroyed. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you? And of course, I did what any good Christian would do. I lied. I said, no, it's just terrible how these things happen, you know, fallen world and all that. Um, but uh, but th this art teacher, he was sort of a left brain, right brain kind of guy because he was the art teacher, but he was also the football coach. And he said, no, 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 Ethan, I saw you. Like, I saw you do it. Now, why on earth would you do such a thing? And I had a uh, moment of transparency, which is rare in high school. And I said, look, you have no idea what it is to be me, man. You have no idea what hell this punk has created for me every day of my life. And I had to do something. And he said, well, okay. First of all, you can't deface the guy's art project. But second of all, I will make sure he never speaks to you again in your whole life. And you know what? He never did. And my life, from that point on, became markedly and distinctively better because somebody cared enough to involve themselves practically and to give me a practical resolution from all my plights, or at least from a major plight in my life. Now, he wasn't a deacon, but he would have made a heck of a deacon because he had a diaconal impulse that said there is a concrete problem and it needs a concrete solution. And so that is uh, an example to simply say that, that your uh, involvement, your practical, tangible involvement in people's lives is a very, very godly thing. Martin Luther once famously said, you know, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Mm -hmm. And that is entirely true. Uh, you know, all Christians are to some degree to have a, uh, a diaconal impulse, but the need for the diaconal impulse is so important that Christians have, by God's design, created an ordained order so that it can be publicly instantiated and identified. And so we could all learn from that concretized example of, uh, of the deacon. And, uh, and so uh, let me simply say this, uh, diaconal hands, the dirty hands of a deacon, are very costly. It's costly to have a diaconal impulse because people, needy people are not sinless and human nature is evenly distributed. Uh, and remember too, the diaconal hands of our Christ, the same hands that healed also hurt. And incarnation is a risky thing. 
This all goes back to the incarnation, right? The enfleshment, the dirty, the, the making dirty of the divinity uh, of God. Uh, Robert Frost put it beautifully in uh, one poem where he wrote, God's own descent into flesh was meant as a demonstration that the supreme merit lay in risking spirit in substantiation. That real spirit becomes fully vulnerable when it makes itself, in a risky way, uh, human, fully enfleshed. But the result of that diaconal impulse, the physicality of God, is that love is actualized and not just a theory. So that's the first point. Hands, the physical, tangible needs of people that are met by this diaconal impulse instantiated in deacons. But also there's a voice in this passage. You know, the main theme in this text from Acts is not only the distribution of food, it's the word. What I like is in, the word is mentioned in verse 1, 3, 4, and 6. And I love how it concludes that even some of the priests were converted. Can you imagine such a thing? Um, but, that, but what's interesting about this passage is that it delineates between tasks and positions, right? The task of preaching and teaching chiefly belongs to the apostles. Now, in our tradition, that's understood to be the role of bishops and presbyters. But at the same time, deacons are permitted when given uh, license, permitted to preach. And that's why Stephen and Philip later are preachers and heralds of the gospel who use their voices to proclaim. And let me say this too, that giving voice to this apostolic word, to the kerygma, to the gospel is necessary. Why? Well, first, because spirituality and articulated speech are part of God himself from the very beginning. The cosmos is spoken into being through the echoing word of God, that the architecture of reality is constructed through articulate speech. Uh, and more than that, the articulator of all that is gave articulation to prophets and apostles who then spoke and then wrote things down so that we would have a collection of articulated speech from which we could understand the architecture of created and redemptive reality. Uh, and... Of course, Jesus, in John chapter 1, is called the Word of God. That Jesus could be summarized with the word, Word. That he was God's expression to the human race. And so giving voice is part of the biblical trajectory from the beginning. God articulates things into being. Prophets do the same thing. And Jesus is that clearest articulation of God. But second, and this is important, the apostolic gospel of grace is not understood without words. Remember that St. Francis of Assisi never said, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words, because after all, he founded a preaching order. Words are necessary to declare the counter and, in fact, non-intuitive Christian insight, namely that God has entered our swamp of moral capitulation and redeemed us with reckless grace in the blood of Jesus without our additives. That is not intuitive. Most people, if they believe that there is a heaven, there is a God, there is some sort of transcendence, you have to claw your way in through all sorts of labors and moral evolution. We don't believe that. Even if it's preached from most Christian pulpits, we don't believe that. We believe instead that we are rescued through the one-way love of God that came down to rescue people when they were stuck, when they were bereft, when they had nothing, when they were dead in trespasses and sins. And that is so counterintuitive, it requires somebody to articulate it to you, somebody outside of you who can give you that needful word of complete, reckless exoneration. So what is the content, the heart of this word? What is it that we need to know? What is it that we are to articulate, Eric, that you are to articulate into being? 
It is not what would Jesus do. Uh, Fitzsimmons Allison, former bishop of South Carolina, loves to tell the story that uh, he was uh, early in his ministry uh, uh, stalked by all sorts of very needy people who would come to him because of his southern charm and sweetness and say, Fitz, I am really struggling with this thing in my life and I need to know what to do. And Fitz would stroke his face, looking very thoughtful and say, well, I would ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And one parishioner was candidly honest and said, what would Jesus do? Hell, Jesus would never have gotten himself into this position. <laughs> we need much more than what would Jesus do. We need, what did Jesus do? What did he actually accomplish? That is, uh, not what did he model for us to copy, because most of what Jesus did is non-emulatable. It's one of the, you know, I mean, he was the second person of the Trinity. There's some limits there in terms of categories, right, in terms of what you are able to do and what I'm able to do and what he was able to do. No, no, no. The apostolic sermons of the book of Acts do not focus on what uh, would Jesus do so much, but what has Jesus done in his death and resurrection that can later evoke the love from us toward God and neighbor? That it all hinges on the unique vox ipsissimi Christianism, or the true insight of Christianity, which is what has Jesus done fully and freely and objectively outside of us without our aid and contribution, period. Um, that is the very thing that we need more than breath in our lungs. Reckless exoneration. There was an anonymous diary uh, written by a woman formerly of the Nazi party, and she wrote it during the aftermath of the Second World War. And you may know that the so Soviets captured Berlin, and you would think that would lead to a great emancipation from all the concentration camps. No, instead what they did is they set up horrific rape camps for German women. Uh, and over 100,000 German women were taken advantage of in these camps. Well, a woman wrote a journal about the atrocities, and it was called A Woman in Berlin, A Diary. Now, the woman is an atheist, but this is what she wrote. I have to think about things. We are waiting here in our own personal hells for some heartfelt word, something that will touch us, some declaration that will bring us back into the stream of life. Our hearts have run dry, she writes. I think they are hungry for what the church calls manna for the soul. I think I'd like to find a church next Sunday. If I get the day off from forced labor, and if they are having services, I'd like to see if churchgoers are finding manna like that. Those of us who don't belong to any church have to suffer alone in the dark. The future weighs on us like lead. I feel so helplessly alone. Well, we do have a heartfelt word that can bring people back into the stream of life. And the word is that there is, when all is said and done, and all other paths are tried and found exhausting, that there is a balm in Gilead, a justifier of sinners who can raise them from the dead. And so, Eric, when you are given the opportunity to use your voice, do not point people back to their own powers, their own ability to repent well. Instead, point people to the benevolent Christ who expects more failure from us than we expect from ourselves. Uh, proclaim him. If you want radical disciples for Jesus Christ who live in a costly way, preach free grace. Use your voice to proclaim the unalterable word of exoneration. Pardon every last one of them. And you will create new creations by the Holy Spirit through the word. So a deacon's vocation is to serve the practical needs of God's people 
because we are tangible creatures in, in need of many things and to use a voice for the eternal needs of God's people. Now let me relate these directly to our beloved, soon to be the Reverend Deacon, Eric Phillips. He even gets his own definite article. That's exciting. <laughs> Eric, I wish to publicly affirm, validate, and underscore your person as well as your calling. Uh, it has been, I can honestly say, without a dash of preacher speak, uh, an unadulterated pleasure and gift to be working alongside you. I find you a fascinating composite of a theologian, a scholar, a Wendell Berry devotee, a rage against the machine rebel, a yinzer, a church planter, a great and present husband, uh, a profoundly gifted father, um, a valued curate, and now soon to be a consecrated deacon. You are a blazing and brilliant spark, uh, human as well as humane, pastoral as well as prophetic. Uh, this design is not accidental, nor has it come to you without great cost, but the cruciform cost that has been part of your life has led you to this place. Every trip, every kiss, every slight was part of the plan that brought you to a place where you are ready to offer your life again to God in this way. And it was not in vain. Nothing was in vain, not for a single second. Yeah. So above all, even though you are the composite of many great and delightful things, remember, above all, that is not where your source of worth comes from. Your source of worth is this and this principally. You are the one whom Jesus loves. That's where your power comes from. So your diaconal ministry is needful. It's costly. Pain is involved in a people-rich ministry. But, dear brother, you are not alone, nor will you ever be. And you are not with help, without help. Stay close to your Bible and its gospel core. It counts for you. Be prayerful. Also, surround yourself with non-psychotic friends who love you. <laughs> and remember, above all things, that the gospel of free amnesty counts not just for those to whom you minister. It counts for you forever and is never contingent upon your ministerial success or failure. So let me at this time simply commend you, commend all of us, and... Commend all to whom you will minister to that love which never dies and to the dazzling grace that always is. Amen. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not.